Welcome to Is It Worth It? The Self-Worth Podcast. My name is Roshni. I'm the founder of Self-Worth Coaching and the CEO of Betty Grew Up, a content creation and coaching platform. This podcast and my work are dedicated to helping you become your most empowered self and to remind you to detach your self-worth from your external life experience. This is powerful work, and I am so grateful that you are joining me for another episode. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to learn even more about self-worth and personal growth, I have links to all of my other content and platforms down in the show notes. You can visit my website, www.betigrewup, to see all the ways that you can work with me. From guided meditations to intensive one-on-one work, there is something available for every phase of your personal growth journey. Once again, you can find the links to everything in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's hop into this incredible episode. Hi, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I am interviewing Neelam Patel, who you've heard on the podcast before. I am so excited to dive into this interview. We are talking all about mindset shifts that she made on her journey to become an author, how self-trust has played a role in her career as an artist, and we're going to be talking about reclaiming pleasure and independence as a South Asian woman. Before we dive in, I have a couple of announcements to make, so if you are listening to this before January 12th, I'm going to be hosting a Manifestation Portal event with my friend Samara at Kasai Thrive on Instagram. Together, we are hosting a donation-based event that starts at $5 where we will be creating our own vision boards. Samara will lead us through a pranayama or breathwork practice to awaken our infinite possibilities. I will be doing a tarot card reading, channeling our higher selves at the end of the session. And in between, you'll get the chance to create your own vision board your own way, regardless of whether that's digital or physical. And you'll have a group of like-minded souls there affirming your dreams. We'll also gather to tell our manifestation success story so that you can share your story and be inspired by the stories of others. If you like to manifest from a thoughtful, community-oriented, expansive way instead of through toxic positivity, this is the event for you. There's a link in the description to sign up. Again, this is happening on Wednesday, January 12th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. The second thing I want to mention is if you are listening to this podcast before January 15th, I'm actually offering $10 one-card mini tarot readings and $25 three-card mini tarot readings. These readings are still so potent, so impactful. I've heard the best things from the clients who have already booked a reading and they have quickly become one of my new favorite offerings, but I'm still only offering this for a limited time. So if you're ready, make sure you hop down to the link in my description and grab yourself a mini tarot reading or two before time runs out. And the third and final announcement that I have is that in this podcast, Neelam and I are going to be talking all about my course, Not Your Betty, which is a guide specifically for South Asian women and femmes to learn how to trust themselves. Neelam was in my iteration of Not Your Betty last year, and we grew and learned so much in that course. And to see her self-trust a year later is just absolutely incredible. I'm still working on adding even more content and modules to the course than were offered last year, so if you're interested in learning about this course or staying updated on when it's coming out, make sure you join the waitlist, which will also be linked in the show notes below. This waitlist will also give you access to early bird pricing. So if you're interested in learning more, don't miss out on joining the waitlist. And now let's jump into the rest of the podcast. Neelan Patel is no stranger to self-expression. A poet, dancer, and actress, she graduated from Rutgers University with the BS in computer science and from Theater Lab's Honors Acting Conservatory. She has written, performed, and produced four one-woman shows based on her poetry, 
while holding down a demanding day job. Go Neelam. In 2020, she took the plunge and left a 22-year career in high tech to pursue her creative passions. During this time, she generated her debut collection, Burning It Down, Dancing in the Rubble. When she's not writing custom poems ordered through her website, Tailored Poetry, you can find Neelam performing improvisational dances in public and practicing her newly found swimming ability. Make sure you stay till the end of the episode or visit the link in the description below to order Neelam's book. Thank you everyone for joining us for a new episode. I'm so excited to have Neelam here again. Let's just catch up a little bit. I know you've spoken to my audience before, but can you share a little bit about what you do and what you've been up to lately? Sure thing. So a couple of years ago, I guess during COVID, maybe a year ago, I burned down my day job altogether and decided to dive into my creative work as a poet, as a dancer. And over the course of this last year, I've learned so much. And one of the things that I've done is write a book of poetry that I've always wanted to do. That's amazing. I remember like when we were first talking, um, like in November of 2020, right? The years like blur together at this point, but, and you were saying that you were like nervous about calling yourself an artist. And I just always think about that because like you are like a multi-passionate published author of your poetry, an amazing dancer, like you're you are an artist in so many ways and to see it all over, you know, your page and to see you going for so many projects, like I don't see you holding yourself back or stopping yourself from doing anything that crosses your mind. And I just love that about you so much. Um, And I also just wanted to ask what inspired you to publish your poetry? That's a great question. So it all started, I guess there's two paths. One is like, how did poetry even get started? And I would say that was way back In 2003, I wasn't fulfilled in my day job. I work in tech or worked in tech. And uh, I got some advice that I had a lot to say and say in public. So I randomly found an open mic night at Barnes and Noble and scribbled down a poem. And I went up there shaking hands and I was like, you know, blurted out my poem. And then when I sat down, I had a mix of two different feelings. One was, I'm never doing this again because it was so scary. I like, was like, oh, here's my bleeding heart and my organs and my vomit and everything. Thank you very much. And then I sat down. And then the other part of me was like, I'm home. This is it. This I know whatever, there was something there. I didn't know what it was, but there was something there that felt right. So that's where that started. And then I ended up like, you know, doing a one woman show actually based in poetry. And because I think I always had a performer inside of me. And when I did that, one woman in the audience came up to me later and said, I wish I could spend a little more time with your poems. And that's when, that was 2006, that I was like, oh, I should do a poetry book, like, you know, and keep the words simple and just keep it on, you know, each page. I had a picture of it. And then, you know, I had a day job that was super demanding. So I didn't do it for all those years. That's so crazy to think about how much time has kind of gone by, but how these seeds were like planted throughout your journey, even though you were in such a different field like that's what I love in people's stories I feel like I hear this and it's even reflected in my story of like doing all the things that I'm doing content and creation wise as well it's like regardless of what path you're on those little pieces of fate like always come and find you and I just love hearing that in other people's stories speaking of that feeling of being on the cusp of fear and excitement like what were some of the mindset shifts that you had to make if you had to make any on this way of becoming an author and really like reclaiming your artistry in this new way That's such a good question because I didn't know what I would have to face until it happened. So I guess two parts. One is just in general, when I burned down my career, like that was something that felt a lot different than I thought, right? I always wanted to be an artist. Everyone's like, oh, Neil, you need to be an artist. Like, what are you doing in this day job, right? It's easier said than done. But then when I did it, it was like, okay, the flames are like still alive. You know, it doesn't just get burned down. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, free blue sky, actually like the smoke is like still out there. You can barely see like what's going on. You've lost your identity. Like you've lost your financial structures. Like, so I think that was the one thing I had to like face everything in a very slow way to understand what's going on inside. Otherwise I would have just hurried up, gone on LinkedIn for a new job. Right. And so that was like really slow and scary. And then on the art side, you know, how to be an author. I think the hardest part for me was realizing that 
in order for me to do this, other people are going to look at my work. And I'm not used to that. I'm used to writing it, performing it, and that's it. So I had, in the program that I joined, I had an editing team, I had a developmental editor, I had an acquisitions editor, I have um, a marketing and revisions editor. And so, um, and, and, and in the developmental editor was when I think everything shifted for me because I didn't know, I think sometimes you take the step and then you're like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. And this was one of those cases where, you know, I would have, it was through this document system. And I know this is a gory details, but it's really important because it was through this documentation system where I wrote a poem on each different document, like it was called Quip. And you can see the alerts when an editor is up in your business, you know, up in your poem, looking at it. And I would get these alerts, like, you know, this person is looking at your poem. Emily is looking at your poem. This person is, and at some point I didn't meet the, all the editors because I had so many poems they needed to get a team. So I was like, oh, I guess I have the capability to have this stranger look at my poem and comment on it. And so that was something where I didn't know I had that skill set. It was almost like I had to, you know, so that surprised me. I totally know what you mean with that feeling of being seen and how like in my journey, I really wanted to be known and I wanted to, you know, be out there with my message and I just wanted it to reach people. But then the other side of it was like, I don't actually want anyone to see me talking about this. I don't want anyone to find my YouTube channel or, you know, to watch my content. And it was such a double-edged sword, but that like getting over that is such a real part of the journey. And I feel like a lot of us don't like I would have described myself as somewhat of a confident person before that but I don't think we really have to come up against that friction and against those wounds until we're really doing the thing and then it's like all these pieces that you didn't even know were like below the belt are now kind of rising and you're like I don't know so it kind of feels suffocating at times at least it did for me um, but then when you get on the other side, like it really does feel liberating. And that, again, is like that same coin of fear and excitement. But I know you've talked a lot about this idea of like burning down your career and like letting everything go. And I know that kind of is a central aspect of your book. So can you speak a little bit about the theme of your book? Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm very excited about the theme of my book. And of course, you know, I should preface all of this. I know I come from a place of privilege that I've worked in this high-tech career for many years that I can burn it down. I totally see that. And still it's scary. And so what I realized was that I was tired of watching um, things on social media or other artists present as healed from something. And I, I mean, I enjoyed it because it was empowering and made me realize I could get somewhere. But I think that was the tension. Like, oh, I can get somewhere. Then what's wrong with where I am now? And so like, I would hear stories about people who maybe were ashamed of their culture when they were younger and then as they're older they're like well now I'm a grown person and so of course you know now I'm proud of my culture and that really made me feel if I were to be honest a little left out and I was shame I was shameful because I was still ashamed so I was like do I pretend that I'm there too you know I'm 46 years old now it's like should I pretend that I'm already there and so then I realized that you know um we're fine wherever we are some things are going to be a mess some things are going to be clear and then those clear things will then become muddled. And so we're always kind of in this middle ground and there is no end. And so it was really important for me to celebrate all the stuff in the middle. So I call it the messy middle and to celebrate it. So the title is, is of my book is Burning It Down, Dancing in the Rubble, because I really think that um, if we're, we're all in the middle, by the way, like that's the secret I've got to tell everyone that like no one's got it figured out. And, and that if we don't, then why don't we just look at the shame that's there? Let's look at the rage that's there. You know, in some ways, my book is a love letter to rage because that was the uncomfortable feeling that I was avoiding most of my time, you know, with having a day job and emails to take care of, meetings to go to. It, so the, the theme of the book is um, let's look at the most uncomfortable things and celebrate them. That is so cool. And I, I love that perspective. I resonate with what you're saying in like the whole, oh, I was broken and now I'm fixed mentality. And I've actually been coming across that in my own content. Like I feel like I've had that, I've put that perspective out there before. And in the last couple of months, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I've literally been thinking like, I need to share more of my actual process. I, I think sometimes I have this tendency to like, yes, I struggled with all this stuff, but let me like wrap it up in a bow. And the intention was always to like show people that 
you can like work on these things, but to say that like, oh, it's all fixed and it's all in the past and they're never going to come up again. That's what I don't agree with. And I want to show more of that in my content as well, because it's, it, it's really important to honor that. And I love the dancing and the rubble piece of it. Um, and there was another excerpt that you wrote and you said, quote, the light is not at the end of the tunnel. It's right here in the middle. So is that kind of what you meant with that quote, like celebrating that messy middle? And can you share even more about, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm so glad you asked because there's so much more meat there because, well, then what do I mean about being accepting of the messy middle? Like that's such a pretty sentence, but what does it mean? So what I mean by like the light is not at the end of the tunnel, it's in the middle. It's like, let's let's make room for all of these parts. And the way that I, I describe it is that think of it as the Thanksgiving table of your soul. And so we're... So far, I have always played the, the role of the bouncer. And I'm like, oh, anger? No thanks. Like that's, that's people will, will think I'm a little too ragey. It's a little masculine. I don't want to show up like that, you know, and then like push out that and then just be happy and, you know, not angry. And, and what I found was that that's where the tension was building because, you know, that's how you pretend that everything's fine. Oh yeah, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for water, clean water, you know, and you just start saying these things like you're like pushing the rage out, you're not feeling the depth of the gratitude that's inside of you because it's being blocked by all this energy that you're shoving the door. And so once I let the rage in and go there, you know, I have a poem in my book called Red and it's about murderous rage and how you can fantasize about actually, actually killing somebody. And we don't talk about that. We don't say the word murder in our normal lives, you know? And I think that what happens is because we don't say that, then it becomes this big thing and it turns into anxiety, it turns into depression, it turns into anything, you know, that is uncomfortable. So then what I say is in my Thanksgiving table, basically, let's feed all of our feelings and let them, you know, I have a poem where I'm like, in fact, I, I invited the rage in and I fed it like raw onions and garlic so it could even rage even more. Because underneath that, when, when she's done raging, if I can make rage a female for the fun of it, then when she's done, there's a breath to be taken to say, oh, I see my part in this conflict. Like if I'm mad at my best friend, then, you know, I have to go there, get angry, get rageful. And then I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I wasn't the best person in that situation either. But it's hard to get there if you're just in this tension of, oh, just pretend everything's okay, you know? And so what do I mean by the messy middle? It's like, let's look at it and sell it. It's gonna be uncomfortable, it's not fun. But, you know, another way I look at it, if, I, if it helps to have yet another example, is if you're on a kayak trip, right, and all your, like, your socks are wet, your underwear is wet, you're just like a complete mess, and you're just like, ugh. But once you're like, okay, everything's gross. And as soon as you accept that everything's gross, suddenly you can see like, oh, it's a beautiful day out. Oh, look what I can do with the boat. You know, suddenly you can actually see and so that's what I'm trying to say. The shame's not going anywhere, like to your point. Like, it's not just going to like disappear. It's gone. It's, it's like, it's, it's there. So just let it sit down and be like, this is uncomfortable. And the second you do that, even if it's just for a moment in your mind and you're like, oh, I have a little shame when I walk into this room. I have a little embarrassment when I walk into this room with these people. And you just let that sit there in your mind and then forget about it, then it's better than being like, let me just pretend everything's fine. And then you're not present. You don't, and you actually miss out on all the good stuff, you know? So I think that's the tragedy. I think that's where the message of my book was, was, was trying to go to is that we're going to miss out on the gratitude, the deeper love, if we, if we miss out on all this uncomfortable stuff. Not that I blame anyone. Like we got to get through our days, right? So I'm not saying it's wrong, but right. I'm just saying, if you have a chance to look at it, why not? Oh, I love everything that you shared. And I also love like the pictures that your analogies bring up in my mind. Like I feel like I'm always going on a journey with like the Thanksgiving table and like inviting rage over. And I I love that analogy as well because I I remember like a similar kind of concept around like grief and fear and Think of in, thinking of them as guests that are coming to your house and are you going to spend all your energy, you know, closing the door and holding it shut while they bang on the other side or are you just going to open the door and let them in and at a certain point that resistance, it's just easier to let go of it and say, you know what, fuck it, things aren't perfect and that's just where I am right now 
And I I love what you said that everything really does exist in the middle. Like so many, so many of us tend to say, oh, I'm happy right now. I'm, I'm satisfied right now. I'm blah, blah, blah. And we forget that we can have more than one emotion at once. And I think especially like with emotions as a whole, it hasn't been that long that like socially, culturally, we've been open to talking about things. Like even if you look at toxic masculinity, that entire concept is also based on the fact that men aren't allowed to show emotions that, you know, emotions are bad to be talked about. Emotions should be left out of the workplace. They should be. And so culturally and socially, emotions haven't always been accepted. And so when we've talked about them for so long in the past, it really is, oh, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm scared. And we don't leave room for everything that exists at the same time. And yeah, I, I just love that that's really, that's honest. Like to be able to feel more things then one at once is truly being honest and meeting yourself in the middle, meeting yourself where your perspective is right now and accepting that, you know? So I, I just love that theme. And I think it's like the perfect timing for something like that to come out, especially as like, we're this far into the pandemic, people have been t like all these distractions have been taken away. And so people have been confronting those parts of themselves more than ever and so I think taking this moment now to celebrate that is like, it's amazing. Um, Thank and you. So and I actually want to add to that, if you don't mind. Um, and I, yeah, and I think the, the reason why it calls to me too is that there's a buoyancy that you get from this. And so, you know, not to say, oh, we have to feel our shame. I mean, we do have to feel our shame to get past our shame. Unfortunately, that's what I found to be true for me anyway. But But just allowing it gives us buoyancy because then we're not, we're not shaming our shame. And so if we are able to feel both things at, at the same time, like I'm really depressed that there are cops that are killing, you know, the African-American community and that, let's say that pisses you off, right? And that makes you so depressed and so there's nothing but grief, right? But if you're able to really go there and feel those feelings and then you have access to being like, well, you know, I'm healthy and actually take in those deeper, happy feelings at the same time. And that you can be both and you can actually have a good day, you know, and I'm not saying there's a cure all or that it's easy and that, you know, one can snap out of it, but pushing it away and pretending everything is fine because we have to is sometimes more harmful than we realize. And then we're losing access to all that good stuff. So the buoyancy of being like, yeah, this sucks, but I'm still, I'm okay. I've got this, you know, that sense of confidence. Yes. And there's two things that I wanted to say. And with you, kind of talking about that, like that piece of us that's almost like hiding from what's going on. When I zoom out, I've always had that kind of perspective on like the culture of America as a whole, or even like white America's response to all of the inequities that have happened at their hands in our past in this country, right? Because it's like, if there was a little bit more openness to seeing what had happened, if there was a little bit more acceptance around the shame, the frustration, the wrongdoings that have happened, things could kind of air themselves out slowly over time. And like, there would have to be apologies, but apologies can't happen if there's no recognition of what happened, right? And so even on like a larger cultural scale, I see that that like that way of how we deal with shame and how we deal with things that we want to sweep under the rug, it's made such an impact on so many people. And it's really responsible for this climate that we've come to live in at this point, you know? Um, so I love that you said that. And it's interesting. I actually had a question that I wanted to ask you about shame. Um, so when I know that you kind of wrote about shame in your book as well, what are some of the challenges that shame presented you with and what are some of the mindset shifts or just you know the things in your journey that you've noticed that have helped you deal with that shame yeah I think um it's hard to be South Asian and not think about shame I think it's one of the first words you learn as a kid right what shame shame right like that's part of our life and so unfortunately it can be crippling as well and so um, I guess, you know, the first thing that comes to mind because of this conversation is I was ashamed that I was an artist. I would rather be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so that was on me, but it was given to me, right, by my people around me, people close to me. You know, I'm not a doctor. I know this every day. I know this, you know, and it would be nice if I didn't have to do that. And so I think 
what really helped me was to actually let the let this shame sting a little and to really go there and really be like you know because because what does that look like like why am I ashamed that I'm an artist and then if I keep complaining about it like oh, I wish I was encouraged or look at this person in Hollywood their parents were art like if I keep on doing that I'm getting even further away from what it feels like for me instead you know like because you can make arguments all day long so for me I'm like oh, okay I had to really stop and go there and get uncomfortable and I was like okay well I feel a little bit like a loser like I really don't have value in society and I had to like really feel like what does that feel like? And and because because other than if I don't do that, then I'm avoiding that tension of feeling that. So as soon as I could feel that, then I could see whether that was true or not. Then I have agency. But if I can't feel it first and really go there and even chastise myself, I know it sounds it sounds like like I'm talking about well, go ahead and self self hate. But if you can observe yourself talking to yourself like this and feeling the feeling then you're not really in it, you're observing it. And then it can kind of lose its lose its power. Um, this is not a popular thought, this is not a popular opinion, it's what worked for me. And I have um, three poems in there. Um, it's called the, the Beautiful Shame Series because in the end I fell in love with shame to some degree because if not for shame, then how could have I opened up the field a little for myself? If I didn't go there and feel the shame, it ended up being my door. It ended up being my door because I had to feel it first. And the poems, I just in the poems, I describe them as electric fences inside of your kind of body. So these are the things that are like holding me back. And then you have to kind of let it sting. And then when you let it sting, it expands your playing field a little bit more. Can you actually share a little bit more about like how it became that door and what it opened up for you on the other side? Yeah, I think that I could look at it more. So for example, if, if, because everything's so subconscious and so deep, right? So if I was like ashamed that I'm coming out as a poet, right? And by uh, publishing a book, you know, I, as I tell my friends, I can't unwrite the book after it's out. Like, that's it. And so once I show up as an artist, that's done. And so a lot of anxiety was going on. And the way that I dealt with it was with my editors. I was like, okay, well, I'll put this book, poem, these poems in the book, but I can always back out or I can always take these poems out or I can, you know, and so what ended up happening was the more I got comfortable with my shame, the more I didn't feel as shameful because I could see the shame. Once you can see it, you can't unsee it. And so, because before I was just paralyzed by it, I was like, you get a little mini panic attack as if your mom is staring at you. Like, what are you doing? You know, but that's you, that's your shame. And so um, I don't know if that's helpful. So like, it's very subtle, right? So I, I, and I really hesitate from going before and after stories like that. So I really don't want to, but at the same time, that is what expanded me. And here I am, I'm launching next month. So I guess there it is, right? And of note, I'm launching it without being like this, right? Because there was one option I could take is back out of it. The other option is just do it and see what happens, you know? And I didn't want to do that. That's how I'd been producing my one woman shows. That's how I'd been showing up as an artist, how I've been auditioning in theater, like kind of doing it in secret while I was doing it. And I think a lot of South Asians will, will understand this experience of doing it, but you're still doing it in secret, even though it's in public, but you're just pretending you're not really doing it. And this time I really was hoping that I could actually do it and, and have this moment in my soul where I'm like, I'm ready to go. And that way I can be a part of it, not, you know, not feel separate from this experience. Like as if there's the artist version of me, there's me and you know, what's going on, and I get to be one person. I love that imagery, and I've had that experience so many times, too, where I'm like, let me post something and literally run away from my phone because I don't want to be seen, and there's that integration that you describe so well where, you know, now you can stay present, and you don't have to check out mentally of the situation, and you're not letting fear overcome you, you know, and um I think for South Asian women specifically, what you shared about, you know, shame being over your shoulder, almost like your mom, I think that's so true. Because I think for a lot of us, it is our mother's voice that we've internalized and inherited. And now it tells us, you know, when we're out of line and what we're doing. And for so many of us, it's literally the same phrases that we've heard like thousands upon thousands of times, you know, in our life. Sometimes like every time you leave the door, it's, you know, a series of these certain questions or these certain reminders. And 
things like that. And, you know, there, there is a piece of like humor in that and, you know, a piece of lightheartedness, but at the same time, it really does. We don't, we don't realize how much it just becomes part of us. And then that's how it gets passed down into the next generation as well. So really taking a look at it and living with it. And I think that's something that I've had to realize, like I've been on my personal growth journey for however many years, but am I ever fully going to let go of shame? Maybe not, you know, it's probably just going to always, and the voice might get smaller and it might get easier to do things, but I think accepting that it's going to come and go, it's going to be there. There's like this little, you know, piece of myself that's open to that. And I can still continue with that being there. Like a lot of the times, like you said, with this kind of before and after image, we wait for things to be completely gone in order to say, okay, now I've dealt with it. Now I can move on. Now we can actually put myself out there and this, that, and the other. And yeah, you might want to make it not the forefront of your mind at this present moment in order to take the next step. Like that is fair and that makes sense. But to wait long enough to expect an entire, you know, emotion or piece of us to completely vanish. I think that can be another form of hiding for a lot of us, you know, so just allowing it to be there and then saying, I'm doing it anyway. And I'm proud of myself in taking that next step. Like that's so important to be able to do that. Um, But I also wanted to talk kind of relating to this topic of shame. You spoke about pleasure and kind of personifying pleasure in your book and saying that you know, she's asking you to surrender to desire. Like, I loved that line that I read. And so um, I'm just wondering, you know, as a South Asian woman, sexuality isn't always celebrated. And so what does it mean to you to reclaim pleasure as a South Asian woman? Uh, it very, very, uh, very appropriate that I was muted right then, because I was just saying that I'm still ashamed of talking about sex. I'm like, I'm actually literally not going to speak about it by muting myself, right? Subconsciously. (laughs) But um, because like, what would, you know, what would the community say? And I think, I think I I still struggle with that, but it's in the book, but, and I'm ready to release it. I'm not doing one of those, ah, you know, Um, but I think, I think it's one of those things where you can debate it in your head all you want, but until you... I, I feel like I'm going to be a broken record on this call, on this podcast, because I had to feel the shame. I had to feel like, oh, I'm dirty, you know, or get angry and at someone else for being comfortable talking about sex all the time. Like, why are these American people always so comfortable talking about sex? Not that all American people are, right? There are enough people out there that relate to me so hard being white, right? Because of their family structures. So, but that's the image I have in my head, right? And so I'm like, does that make you dirty? Like, are you, are you guys all just like dirty people? Like, you know, and so these things were put into our heads when we were young. And so then even having, and here's the painful part, right? Like even having a thought that's sexual, right? I mean, for those of us who are not asexual or like actually experience sexual thoughts, you know, then, then those thoughts feel dangerous, right? So then you're like, do I even have them? And then speaking of asexual, like the only solution to that problem would be to show up in the world as asexual. Then, okay, then I'm a clean, good girl, right? So I think that that's really hard like to to come to terms with. But when you look at that and you like really sit with like feeling dirty for having a thought, you know, and I'm not saying all South Asians relate to this, right? But for those who do, who happen to be like me and we're like pretty extreme with that, right? And then I think that's why I wrote about it because it was probably like, my sexuality, my sens- I call it, it's, I think it's more like your sensuality because it's like how you experience the feelings of the world that then translate into sexuality to me anyway. It's like all the same thing. Then I, I just think that it makes it easier to be like, wait a second, I'm breathing, I'm alive. Like that's part of my humanity, but it's hard to get there by debating, right? Like I, I used to have friends that were like, if I would talk about it, be like, well, you know, how did the entire... India nation the nation of India be like exists if it weren't for sex like that's how humans come and that's a pretty big country and I'm like great point let me write it down but it doesn't help me I still feel ashamed you know like I, I, people are trying to help right and I'm like okay but now I'm but the problem with that is then you feel double shame because you're like I get it but now I feel so stupid that it's still not registering so yeah I'll just pretend I get it and I'll just pretend I like that you know and I think, I think everyone's always on the pendulum, like even if you grew up talking about sex, right? Certain things, certain acts, something might make you feel ashamed. And so the fact that you're 
living with both, like the pleasure, like how do you deny the pleasure and the um, the shame, right? I think that that to get past it, to be like, I'm only going, you know, that pleasure is going to keep talking to me, going to keep calling me, right? Like certain things just feel good. And then what are you going to do about that? Well, look at it, quite frankly. So I know I sound, it's like, it's like my advice is don't do anything, you know, and it's like a very weird thing to talk about, but really it's sitting deep, more deeply and um, maybe not more deeply. Maybe the, the answer is more that sit a little bit longer, get curious a little bit longer about that, what that weird tension is and just sit with it. And it's hard because it feels so dangerous. It feels dangerous to feel, to feel the pleasure. It feels dangerous to feel the shame. So um, it's not comfortable at all. Yeah, I love that dichotomy at the end, like looking at pleasure and shame on kind of opposite sides of the spectrum. But I think that relates to this like archetype of the dark feminine so well, you know, like, oh, how can we celebrate these things and not have everything be like light all the time? Or, you know, like this, we don't have to be like these angels or even like this kind of Madonna, um, what's it called? What's the other side of it? Uh, it's like, I can't remember. I can edit that in. But like the Madonna something kind of balance where like even men will sometimes see their wives as like these saints and then they won't want to have sex with them because this like idea of pleasure is so wrong when you characterize this woman as like an angel or as something untouchable and um, embracing this kind of aspect of femininity from the lens of like quote unquote darkness which is really just celebrating yourself and letting go of that shame I think that's such an important journey for so many of us to live on and to accept that pleasure can be celebrated in this like dark way like it, it we don't have to take it all the way from you know oh I, I want it out in the open and I want like not out in the open but like it doesn't have to be this like like bubblegum and cotton candy kind of concept and we don't have to even take it to that place. Like we can allow it to be a little bit more quiet or a little bit more secretive without being subdued or without being ashamed and to kind of have this like fun, playful energy around this dark side of ourselves and allowing that to see the light. I think that is such an important piece of the puzzle. And so many of us are trying to shove it all the way to that side of like, everything's fairy and fairies and candy and whatever. And it's like, no, but what about that other side? Or what about this whole spectrum in between? Um, so I love that kind of balance of going back and forth. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, it becomes just by looking at it, it becomes more um, acceptable to your own sanity, right? And then you're able to experience all the shades of, of it. Like even if it's, you know, even if it's pleasure in the in terms of just food, right? I think I think that's an easy place for South Asian women to go to for pleasure because it feels safe. Mom and dad have no problem with you eating food, you know? And so, but even just to start there and like eating it for the sake of the pleasure is is a great place to start to say, oh, okay, this is what that feels like and then put that in your body and then you know see how it comes together for you in general just just even think about the concept of it is is helpful just to even say the word pleasure we never say that that word it's a great word to say yes it is such a good word to say and i am like i should say it more i should like get more like focus on having pleasure in my life more but i think something that i haven't done in a long time but if anyone listening is like ooh how can i do more of this like having like a sensory self-care night where, and like, it can be simple, you know, you can have just like a really good smelling candle and maybe some chocolate covered strawberries or run yourself a bath and just enjoy all of those things in one night and just celebrate like that you can make yourself feel good, right? It doesn't have to go to like, okay, I'm going to join a BDSM club and like, you don't have to take it that far, you know, but it can just be like, and, and having a sensory self-care that like even things like that it, it doesn't have to be the spectrum of how open do I have to be how whatever it's just about you know finding that feeling of feeling good and being able to like bring that to the forefront of your focus for a little while you know so um and I think that's kind of where self-care the concept started but then we got so far away from that, that it almost just makes it seem like another chore on our to-do list now. Like, oh, I have to do my skincare routine. I have to do this and that. 
And it's like, it became this thing that got like commercialized and, you know, became this whole capitalist thing of way to just sell more products. And we can focus on pleasure in different ways. And for me, sensory stuff is just a big part of that, but it can be, you know, whatever anyone enjoys, like it's just special to have those moments to yourself. But um, I wanted to ask kind of switching gears a little bit, how has your self-trust kind of evolved in this process of, you know, becoming an author or claiming your artistry or any other things that have been going on for you in the last, you know, year? Yeah, I think, um, I think it was, I would say it was a process. And I think this, as you're just reflecting on it with you, I think the shame of being an artist was a big one. What you see behind me is, um, the Washington Post review of my one woman show in poetry. And this is the front page of the style section. And they wrote some awesome words about my show. It was my first show ever. It was like, felt like beginner's luck, but I forgot about their review. So like when I made my website, uh, I do custom poetry and I have a website called Tailored Poetry. And my coach was looking at everything and she's like, you have a Washington Post? Well, why isn't that in the front of the page? Why didn't I know this after we've worked together? I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. She's like, what are you talking about? So this shame of being an artist and putting it in the you know, forefront became such a process for me that I had to like be, I had to do things that were uncomfortable and just be like, okay, you know, and it was a little bit over the fence. Like if I was in another meeting or whatever, I would say, well, I got a Washington Post review. I had to put it on the back of my book, right? So I think that level of confidence came as I was slowly owning it and slowly realizing that I could, I could be, I could feel the shame and do the work together. And actually that's what I think shifted for me, you know, and, and then I got into it, you know, I was like, okay, where do we put this marketing messaging? Right. Like I got into it, like, like as if it was my day job, which it is. So that was interesting. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the first thing I think of um, because I, I think really own it. I think as a South Asian artist, if others are on a similar path, then you're constantly doing it in secret, especially if you have a demanding day job where you're constantly getting promoted, right? Which is happening to me while I'm, you know, auditioning for shows, writing poetry, trying to make this happen. And so you can always pretend that this is just this other thing. But when you take that off, then you really have to face everything that was capping you. Yeah, that's so true. And I think with self-trust as well, like, it can be a little seed. It can be, you know, the whole, like a feeling that takes over your whole body. But if any amount of it is there, I think that can be enough to keep you going on your journey in order to face the scary things. Because it's that, even if that little tiny voice in the back of your head is saying, keep going, you know what you're doing, or keep going, this is going to be great. It is just the best feeling in the world. And sometimes like everything sometimes we face rejection so much, so much struggle. The work itself is hard. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and effort. And to be able to deal with all of that, like when you're feeling so low and like things are never going to work out for you and the work is just getting harder and harder and you feel like you're not being repaid for it. Like there's, I always have those moments in the depths of like my creation, but to have like even that tiny piece of you say like, keep going, or even just like, this is what you're here to do. And that part of you that also kind of enjoys it, even if it like whittles down to a small voice, it's so important. And I think without that, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing for this long. And I think that's beautiful because it really doesn't take much of like, I don't think there's a such thing for me anyway of like perfect self-trust, right? You're always jumping into the deep end with a little bit of, oh my gosh, this is happening. You know, um, you might be ready, but there's still a trust that happens when you dive in. And I think that's really important to know that you don't need all that much. It's just that little sliver. And then what I found was that when you take that little sliver and you do a little, I think the biggest shift for me happened while I was writing my, when I was writing my book was with my developmental editor. And when I was working with him, I didn't know my book had anything to say. Like, I didn't know I had a message. I knew I wanted to do a book of poetry. But as he was reflecting back to me what my poetry was saying or what he was capturing from it, it was clear to me, wait a second, I have something to say. I want to be a voice for this particular thing. But that wouldn't have happened 
had I not just taken the one point of trust to write the one poem and then just see where my my intuition was taking me. And then he was a mirror to reflect back. And sometimes you need those mirrors. This is not, I think that was the other lesson in, in self-trust is you that it's, it's a team effort. Like, yeah, you need that little sliver, but then when you have people around you that are supporting you, you realize that you can't do it on your own. And so it becomes this sort of thing where the flame gets to keep going because of other people's help as well. Yeah, I think that's so special, like having that kind of team behind you. And I love that the theme of this book came out so organically as well, because it shows how much like this is your journey. It's not just something that you came up in a surface level way. This has been lived out through your process and through your experiences. So to kind of come from that like inside out way, I think that makes everything that you say even more special. Um, And I also just wanted to quickly comment on the piece where you were saying like the the trust also happens as you're falling. That just gave me the vision if anyone who's listening is um, into tarot or is uh, reads tarot, the fool card is, you know, uh, this image of someone standing on a cliff about to jump. And it really speaks to like being a novice in your journey, but being carefree enough to do it anyway. And I think what you're saying also kind of illustrates that same feeling of like, you can only be so ready at the edge of that cliff, but taking the leap itself, that leap is what gives you that trust and grows that trust, not just you standing there looking at the view and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Like that can only take you so far. So I love that image and that kind of idea of like trust happens along the way by you taking every foot in front of the other without that guarantee on the other side. I was going to add that, like, that's a really good point. I think that I'm so glad you pointed out because that would be probably the crux of what has worked for me. When I showed up to that open mic, I'd never written a poem before, right? When I did a one woman show, I learned later that actors who do one person shows play more than one character. Okay, I didn't do that. I learned that actors um, wait until the end of their acting career to do solo shows. That was my first thing I did. So had I had any information, I would have probably stopped myself in my tracks. So in some ways it's good that I kind of just go with it, right? Um, But also you're right, like I did it. And then I was like, oh, I can produce a show. I know how to do that because I did it, not because I knew how to do it. It's just such an amazing feeling to look back on your journey and realize how much faith you had in yourself at the time, because it doesn't always feel like it in the moment, but to look back and say, holy shit, I did that. Like, who am I? You know, it's such a good feeling when you realize how hard it is and you've come up across those fears, even after you've started doing it, looking back is just like, oh my God, you have like this like vote of confidence in yourself because you know what you know now, you know? Um, yeah, and I want to say, like, I don't want to get too ahead of myself either because when I started, it was one poem at a time. It was showing up to one open mic. So if you just listen and you say, okay, my life is not satisfying right now. I want to do something creative. What's one thing you can do? You know, do your morning pages, you know, write three pages in the morning, whatever that is, right? You can write about your list of things you have to do this weekend, whatever. But if you take that one step, the more you do this, this sounds really simplified, but the more you do something, the more it is fed. The less you do it, the less it wants to be fed. So I know that sounds so simple, but like if someone said to me when I started, you know, when I had the idea of doing a poem and I didn't even know if it was a poem, I every time I went up, I'd be like, hi everyone, my name is Milam. I don't know if this is a poem, but just bear with me. You know, that's how it all started. But, you know, it was that one step. So always just ask what's one step. And it adds up so much over time. And then the more steps you take, even if they're little tiny baby steps, one day that's going to build up so much confidence and practice and faith in what you're doing that it's not hard to go out for the huge things or, you know, just say, screw it. I'm like going all in on this because you've seen that you've shown up for all the other times. I also wanted to talk about, you were like, such an amazing person to have in my first iteration of Not Your Betty. And I'm so glad you were in that course. That's my course on self-trust. So I wanted to ask you what about that course or like what takeaway has just kind of stuck with you? I think that first of all, a lot of what we do when we're growing up in, you know, if, if you have a similar upbringing as me, is you think you have to do everything by yourself, including emotional support, right? I got to get through this. I got to get through this. And so one thing I learned was that just by having a community, just by having other people, that 
there was a relief there that I don't have to carry all this weight by myself. Um, so that was one piece of it. And I think the other piece was, as you guys know now from the beginning of this podcast, I had shame about being an artist as a South Asian. I would rather be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? And I'm saying this out loud because I think there's still a part of me that's like, yep, yep, that's it. I would rather be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so I'm letting that person have a little voice too in this in this program. And so I think by showing up to you in this group that I could see your presence there as a South Asian, and I could see myself being an artist and getting encouraged for it, or at least not discouraged, right? Like there were, we weren't making big deal out of everything either, which I think was really helpful that we're just looking at things. And that's really what resonated with me. So um, I'm, I'm actually really proud of myself. That's not something that I would have ever thought, oh, I need the support of some South Asian people in order to do this thing, you know? Um, that was not in my vocabulary. That was just not how I operated. I have enough friends. I've got, you know, and I do have support. Like people, I do ask for help. You know, I didn't have that problem where I have to do everything by myself, but this specific way of coding this into my body that I needed that presence, um, I think at least uplifted me a little. I'm not saying all the days were great. You guys know, I mean, when you were in the group, like I had some bad days where I'm like, oh, I feel guilty that I'm dancing. How should I, what should I do? You know, because I wanted to post more dance videos. And, but just that I had this group to talk to when that happened, or even just mention that it happened, right? To be like, okay, let's, we're carrying this together. That was really helpful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And it's, it was so interesting. I remember kind of having this piece of the conversation that where you mentioned, you know, having other people who were South Asian kind of encourage you. And it was really flipping the experience around because like we talked about earlier, that voice of shame that so many of us have is our mom's voice or is a form of that, or, you know, that has influenced what we feel. And for so many of us, including myself, to be shamed by aunties or to be shamed by other family members for different things to then look at a group of South Asian people and say, oh, this is where I'm going to unravel the shame. That is a really different experience. And even myself, like I had my own hesitations, not even as a coach, but just as a person, like, what, what does this mean for my culture to now be looked at not as closely associated with shame as I thought it was before? And I had built up a lot of those negative associations between my culture, especially as like a kid, you know, being around all white people in suburban Texas, but then to have like these big cultural expectations, like it was hard to make sense out of like what was going on. And a lot of the times my culture to me was just associated with strictness and with shame and white people could do whatever they want and they had more fun and they could, you know, and so that was how I perceived a lot of it as a kid. So to grow through that and still have a lot of those associations, like there was some resistance there. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I think that's what made it, made it easier is that we we're all coming from that similar place. And I guess I would add that even, you know, even if there was not a structure or a place to go, just the cognitive knowledge of having that grounding you know just like I know in my head I can do these things and I know in my head I have Roshni's support I know in my head I have these things but to really just talk about it and observe someone sitting there without judgment put something into your biology into your neurology I'm not a scientist um as we know <laughs> I'm an artist but it put something into my system that was safety and so I think that I didn't know it when I signed up, but what I got was, okay, there's a place where this is safe. Even if, you know, we're not doing back to my whole advice, don't do anything, just sit, you know, that's, that's what, that's what the benefit was just to change that for a moment. And like we said before, it just takes a moment where it's like, okay, in this moment, I talked about how I want to talk about sensuality in my book, like, oh, and just watch your face not be judging or, or screaming at me or like all the things that I'm afraid will happen, right? Then I'm able to replant some trust. Yeah, I love that so much. And um, I can also take this piece out if you're not comfortable about sharing. So just let me know. But I remember there were some points in that class where you were really getting into kind of the core of the rage that you were feeling and starting to open that door. And I remember you had this like big parchment paper or something on your kitchen island and you were like writing pieces of like what had made you rageful or what had made you angry. 
Um, and I remember you like also sharing some stories of like being in your shower and just kind of expressing some pieces of rage for the first time. And I was just wondering, is there anything that you could share kind of on that like a journey of stepping into rage and really letting yourself go there? Like when you were first doing it, how did that really feel for you? Okay, this is a long journey of rage for me. So there was a time when I felt so rageful years ago, like before I, you know, did all this, like really sitting with these things. And I felt like breaking a plate and I didn't know why. And I remember thinking, oh, girl, you have to get it together. And at the time I had just been unemployed and all, all this stuff. So I was like, get a job, get it. To, you're going crazy. And this is a story I would have never shared before because it was this moment that was so weird. And I was like, I'm breaking it. I broke it. And I was like, because I didn't know what I was angry at. I didn't know what was happening, but I knew that I was like, oh, this is not good for you. You need to get a J-O-B, you know? And so I did. I got a job. I did the things and I pretended that never happened. And then when I was starting to deal with the rage, I couldn't help but remember that moment. And so this is all very vulnerable for me to share because that was really embarrassing. Like who does that, you know? And I'll tell you who does it. Someone who never felt angry before, right? Like that's who does it. Like, where's it going to go? And so it had to go somewhere. And so like, as I was slowly, slowly, slow, and I'm still working towards getting comfortable with rage, I got to a place where I ended up calling it my rage shower because I would go in the shower. And for some reason that I, maybe it was like the safety of the rectangle, the steam. I knew no one was going to get murdered. Right. Then I could, in my imagination, go there and stack the bodies, you know, like this person, that person. And, and imagine specifically how for each person, and it's all designed differently. And I'm like, whose brain came up with this? This is really gory and specific. <laughs> like, who are you? But then I started enjoying it. Like enjoying it, meaning like, because I got it out of me. It was no longer eating me, you know, because that's the thing with rage. It starts to eat you in all these different ways, right? Or you literally start to eat food. And then it's like, you're eating so much, right? And it's just not comfortable. So I call it my rage shower. And I think, I think I've gotten more comfortable with it to the point where I'm telling you and in public that, you know, murderous thoughts happen. And, and then honestly, like at the end, I was like, I would be like, okay, I do like this vitality check. I'm like, no one died. You know, I didn't, I didn't die. I'm not going to jail. Like that person's still alive and well kicking, you know? So like, because I'm so new to it, I had to do these like little like sanity checks. And then I realized like back when I thought that I was going crazy by breaking the plate, that was probably when I was starting to go sane. And so now I'm letting myself really go there. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing and just being so vulnerable and open about that. And I love what you said about um, that's when you were starting to go sane. Oh, like Yes, I love that so much. And this whole like idea of being friendly with your anger or your rage and, and welcoming it. And I, I love doing rage rituals. So I totally understand like that physical kind of space where you get into that zone and allow it to kind of blossom. Um, and just this, it kind of reminds me going back to that piece of dark femininity where a lot of like a woman's power, I believe, and like, I'm also non-binary, but I do love femininity and kind of learning more about these energies of being feminine and masculine. And this idea of like, you know, a protective mother, like anyone will like kill for their children, right? And so there is this violent side, but it's so beautiful and it is feminine and it is you know, protective and, and pure in its own way. And I think celebrating that and looking at these things that we've been shamed for and taught to think are bad and instead saying, but no, that is like where the passion of my feminine side comes from, like to refigure kind of your mindset towards all of those things into that perspective of it. Like, I feel like it's so satisfying to this deep part of myself that's felt like they've been stuck in a box for so long. And I love that you said that because to celebrate it, to call it blossoming, I think that's the reframe that that is really helpful. Like to say like, you know, I call my rage, my nurturing rage, my nutritious rage, because underneath it, and that by underneath it, I don't mean like you're trying to get somewhere, but you know, rage also like 
what like even the cloud like I don't know I think it was a poet who said it once like even the clouds run out of rain at some time but you have to let it rain and so then under there is like this maybe a new sense of peace because now you've created a new separation from this person that was maybe tied to you too closely or you know you realize how much you love them now or you know and, and in the end you're you're begging for something your rage is just begging for something and you get to see what you're begging for oh I need this oh like what is that hunger what is that need now you can actually once your mind is clear which like all of a sudden you can actually see clearly like oh I need this I need this let me just vocalize what, my, what I need no big deal but you can't get to that place you know unless you go through this and like really acknowledge your truest feelings without being like oh you're being so dramatic it's like no I feel like that the drama comes because we're holding it back you know I actually have a poem if I may where I call it like I say it was never like the you know how people say like oh that's a crazy auntie we keep locked in the attic it's like it wasn't that we were locking her in the attic that made her crazy it was the closed door that was making her unhinged like fine put her in the closet but just don't shut the don't shut the door. I'm about to curse. <laughs> like, like, let's look at everything. Let's look at what you're calling crazy. Oh, you're just such a good writer. Like the door and the unhinged part. Like, yes, it just, it fits and it makes so much sense. And um, even the, the aspect of needing anything is something that people will shame women for. Like how many, like from even a, a, a teenage girlfriend, like looking at their boyfriend and being like, well, I don't want to ask for something because I don't want to be needy. You know, and even as women get older, like they'll say, I don't want to nag, I don't want to be needy. And it's just this like huge, you know, wound that women have as well is this feeling of, you know, I, I can't be like strong all the time and I can't just shut up and be happy with whatever's happening. And I can't, you know, ask someone for this. And um, that aspect of even like more recently, the girl boss, the woman who gets everything done, you know, you work hard and you're wealthy and you have all these kids and you have a husband and everything is just a massive responsibility, but you can't then turn around and need something. Right. And, um, I just think that's, that's a really important piece of the puzzle as well Is like the bottom of that rage is you needing something, but when you're not allowed to need something, of course, it's going to get buried in rage. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it actually ties to what we were saying before, where like you have all these like uncomfortable feelings and be okay. That, you know, just because you have a problem doesn't mean you are a problem. And so in the same way, just because you need something doesn't mean you're needy. It means that you have some needs in order to feel good. And isn't that the point, you know? And so, and I think what's really interesting is that it doesn't mean you need it and then you demand it and then you get it. It means you get to talk about it. And there's so much healing. By healing, I mean, like, there's so much, like, relaxation that comes from just having said it and ha I mean, hopefully it's a person who can receive your need and your request. And if not, then that tells you something. But I think you're right. Like if we can't vocalize what we need, then, you know, I'm going to have probably decades of rage. Maybe that's my destiny, you know, like my shower is always going to be, a maybe I should have a second shower, a <laughs> rage shower just for the, just for the sake of it. I'm here for that. Yeah. Like we need space to vocalize things and we need what we vocalize to be accepted um and just giving ourselves space for that is the first place to start before we can wait for anyone else to receive us because if you don't know your own worth going into that kind of interaction and someone else doesn't receive it well you'll go right back into that shame spiral so instead understanding your shame kind of from the inside out understanding your rage and feeling like you're not going to shame yourself for being enraged about something or for needing something when you've dealt with that from the inside, and then you go out into the world, it's easier to say, okay, well, they didn't receive that well, that's them, that's my relationship with them, or that's on, you know, their perspective, that's not something that you have to then internalize and reshame yourself for. And I love I that you said that, I feel like you can be a walking book tour for me now, because the whole point of my book, I think, is that it can serve as your, like, your internal best friend, because you're right, like, you can't, you can't even come to terms with the fact that you are rageful until you notice it. And so my goal for my book, if I were to have a goal, like you guys already know that I'm all about just sit with it. But if I were to have a goal, it's that you see that, oh, wait, this other person felt this way. Maybe I actually, you know, like my broken plate, if I had read this book of poetry back when I had broken that plate, maybe I would have looked at it differently just for myself. And then if you can allow it for yourself, then it becomes speakable. 
the problem is that it's so hard to speak about anything because we're, we're shaming our shame. And then, and now, you know, with all the things in, in town about shame, we're shaming the fact that we're shaming our shame. And I mean that, like, I'm not just saying that to be cute. It's that like vulnerability is hard. So if we go around saying we should be vulnerable, we should be not shameful. We should talk about our shame, but we can't, we haven't addressed the fact that vulnerability is very dangerous. And it's a very privileged position to be in, to be vulnerable. And so to just look at how hard that is, right? And to accept that, okay, this is really hard. I'm not a vulnerable, okay. Well, I am, I, I wear my feelings on my sleeves and I think it's a superpower. So let me help you by, you know, showing you what I feel. So uh, yeah, I love that. Like look at it for yourself and then maybe it'll become speakable. That's your choice. I'm not telling anyone to do anything. I love that you really go there in this book and just, get so candid and open and vulnerable and being strong enough to not only say I'm okay with these things, but then to turn it around and say, this is my superpower. I think that really is a message that so many people need to hear right now. So speaking of that, where can people find your book and beyond your book, where else can people connect with your work as an artist? Thanks for asking. I would love to have you connect with my book. I am going to be available on Amazon in January, so it's a little early. We are pre-launch. Um, I just got to see my cover, so it's all getting very real in my mind. And you can get the book on Amazon. It's called Burning It Down. Um, that, that should be out end of January, but you can always follow me to get the latest updates. And please do. That's my Instagram at Dance with Neelam. And Neelam is N-E-E-L-A-M. So Dance with Neelam. Um, follow me and also, I run a custom poetry business, which you can find out about from that same Instagram account or go to tailoredpoetry.com. Yay, I'm so, I've already pre-ordered your book. I'm so excited to read it. I cannot wait. So I'll definitely be posting about it online when I finally get my copy. Um, but thank you again for just being on the podcast, for sharing so much of your story. You had such beautiful insights and I really want to acknowledge you for just being such a cool like artist and multi-passionate South Asian person, like you really are a role model, you know, and I'm so glad that we've been able to connect as friends and, you know, stay kind of caught up on each other's journeys because you are doing such amazing work and you're, you're truly inspiring. So thank you. And thank you, Roshni. And thank you for offering what you offer in the world too. I'm so glad to be part of your circle and I really do believe in the power of South Asian women so really excited for you as well thank you so much as always for joining me for another episode of is it worth it if you've been enjoying this episode and think it would be helpful for others please make sure that you rate and review the podcast it really helps me so so much in supporting the podcast and helping it reach new audiences and if you are able to write a review and email me a screenshot at hello at betigrewup.com you'll be able to receive 10% off of any of my single session services so that includes single session self-worth coaching and single session tarot readings all links to my other content, my services are all going to be in the show notes below. Thank you again so, so much. I deeply appreciate your listenership and I hope you have a beautiful day ahead.